You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Hi, I'm Linda Sharkey and uh, with me is... Morag. Hi, how are you? (laughs) uh, We've been just running around the globe of late. Uh, Yes, uh, indeed. Where have you been then? It's like, where's Waldo? Where have you been then, Linda, recently? <laughs> where's Waldo? You name it. I've, I've been there. And, you know, and always never fails in summer. But I did manage to squeeze in a little vacation time in Greece, which was phenomenal. Delightful, I'm sure. Delightful. Yeah. So, I mean, in some of my travels, it's really clear, and probably to you as well, that you know, women are really starting to get some purchase in the world. I was uh, recently in the Middle East, and uh, a lot of changes going on. They're putting women on the board. Uh, they put a woman on the board of Saudi Aramco. A uh, lot more focus there on uh, work, and I'm seeing that in lots of places in the world. Are you? Uh, I am, and let's just go with about time. About oh, time. Totally. It only took like forever. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the Me Too movement, regardless of uh, how hard the pendulum may be swinging in one way, is also pretty telling that, that people are just not tolerating certain behavior anymore. Well, I think you're right. It's just helped add to the momentum. And it's interesting because I was reflecting at the beginning of the year, well, what was the tipping point? What was it in the water or whatever that made this year the year? But you know what? I'm not going to question it. We'll learn from Sally, no doubt, what some of those triggers might be. I'm just glad that the conversations are happening and things are starting to change for all of us. Yeah, which is really, really great. It's about time. So I'm really thrilled. Uh, We have with us today Sally Helgeson, who is really one of the world's top experts on women's leadership for for really more than 30 years. I mean, Sally and I go way back, actually, good old GE days. And she's an author, speaker, consultant. And she's always been, her her whole focus has always been helping women and uh, in their their quest um, to play to their strengths. Her best-selling book, actually, the first one I think that made Sally famous was *The Female Advantage: Women's Way, uh, uh, Women's Way of Leadership*, and it's actually still in print. It's really considered a classic. And her latest book with Marshall Goldsmith, *How Women Rise*, is phenomenal. I, I love this book, Sally. So, so excited to have you. And the book I just saw was translated into Russian, and I know yes. you're all over the world speaking that. So. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm wonderful, Linda. It's great to be with you today. Uh, really having a wonderful time being out there supporting How Women Rise. It's, it's uh, one of the most exciting times of my life. Yeah, it's, it's really terrific because, I mean, you, you know, you have been out doing this for a lot of years. So this is, this is not something new, but there's a vortex that seems to have coalesced around these issues. What, what do you think that is? What's the I, I think 
that, you know, you, you had mentioned the Me Too movement, and I think that it, there was a buildup to that that began happening with those women, like uh, particularly Gretchen Carlson speaking out at Fox, and that that whole thing coming out, and then the Ellen Powell case out in Silicon Valley. So I think that the, 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 the way it exploded around Harvey Weinstein had really been prepared for, for over the last five or six years. And what, in my view, has happened is that women have just become more confident about their skills, about what they have to contribute, about their gifts, and also about, in theme with the Future Proof Workplace, about the appropriateness of what they have to provide yeah. uh, to organizations, to our culture. I just saw a, a Gallup poll this morning saying that 67% of Americans say that it would be better if there, that our country would be run better if there were more women in office. So that's, you know, that's almost here, 70%. Here. <laughs> I yeah. know you agree with that, Morag, right? You're <laughs> here, here. Well, yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, though, the environment is the inertia once they get there. I was reading the headlines of the Australian Parliament, which is suffering a bit of bad rap for the misogyny yeah. and the comments being shouted across the House at female speakers, etc. And I can only imagine that, and I hope in the upcoming elections, we see a lot more female and minority and different perspectives entering into our government sector. They're at the time for change is now. The yeah. problem is there are some deeply ingrained bad toxic habits that need to be overcome. Yeah, yeah. There are, but you know, women are essential to overcoming those habits. And um, it's really interesting that uh, I've had, the only pushback I've had on this has been sometimes when I do programs, people will say, well, uh, you know, why aren't you focused on cu changing culture and, and, uh, and uh, structure of organizations? Your new book, How Women Rise, talks about behaviors of yeah. women that get in the way. But really, the way that culture and structure begins to change is when there are more women mm. in high positions. So making that happen is the key. It's a chicken and egg. So tell us more about the book then and this concept of why you chose habits or behaviors for the focus. Yes. Well, the, the book, How Women Rise, uh, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, who's the world's top-ranked uh, leadership coach. And what How Women Rise does is it really builds on Marshall's brilliant bestseller, which is called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, published in 2007. And in that book, from his perspective and the perspective of his coaching, he examined the behaviors that get in the way of successful people that may have served them early in their careers, but become problematic as they seek to move to higher positions and have more influence and authority. And it was very clear to me from doing women's leadership workshops all around the world uh, for the last seven or eight years. I mean, I've been in this field for uh, for 30, as Lyndon noted, but, but I've been doing a specific kind of uh, workshop that deals a lot with building an intentional career. And it was very clear to me from doing, from doing those workshops that a lot of the, that while some of the behaviors in Marshall's book, what got you here were gender neutral, others 
were very were quite particular to the heavily male CEO uh, group that he coaches. So we decided we also had a friend that made that observation to us. So we decided uh, to collaborate on a book uh, that took that great premise that some of the behaviors that some of the behaviors and habits that serve you well early in your career can get in your way as you seek to move higher. Take that and look at what are those behaviors specifically that uh, are most likely to trip up women as they seek to rise. Interesting. So, so tell me how, what, um, what are the biggest behaviors? Let's, let's start with the ones that you think are most uh, significant. Yeah, the ones I think are most significant, and I really think this because whenever I do a program, and I've been on the road for 11 weeks with this book, so I've done you know practically almost every day until two weeks ago, I was doing an event somewhere about this book. And I always ask, you know, which of these habits do you, th- do you most identify with? And the ones that come up over and over and over again are first of all, expecting others, I'd say this is number one, expecting others to spontaneously notice and value your contributions rather than having to bring attention to them yourself. Hearing women say things like, well, if I have to act like that jerk down the hall, I would, you know, I, I, I would rather stay where I am, which sets up a terrible either or conundrum. <laughs> you know, either I'm the biggest jerk in the country, in the company, or I am, you know, I just get noticed for my work and, and don't say anything. And then the so, other thing I, I would hear was, you know, I believe if I do great work, people should notice. And, and neither of those is effective. And I recognize both of those in me, Sally, (laughs) definitely. And if I layer on the British of, I can't toot my own horn, I'm I'm doomed. Doomed, (laughs) I am. But I think we were raised not to toot our own horn. Actually, I think it's very ingrained in in, uh, the, the, the neuroscience of our brain. I agree with that, Linda. And and the, the key is really is not trying to adapt the behavior of the loudest jerk in the room, yeah. but finding ways that you are comfortable with conveying um, what you're accomplishing. And one of the things I, in my experience, I find that is most effective is treating it as information that other people may need to know. That's very effective. So I, I did an interview yesterday and the opening question was, uh, I was pre-brief, say, opening question was to set my expertise. And on reflection, I'm not sure I did so well because I glossed past it because I didn't have this wisdom. So what can one do to share it as information that others need to know? How do well, I do that? Yeah, first of all, in that kind of situation, such as you were in, you have to be prepared. You have to yeah. have a very clear sense of what your personal mission is, what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, once that happens, once you have that, once you kind of have that, uh, 
vision statement, as it were, rehearsed, then in that kind of situation, you can always use that as a default. I I, I share this, Mark. I've, I've always had trouble with this. And I came up with a statement that I can use all the time and use with comfort. But within an organization, we have a great example in the book of a woman engineer out in Silicon Valley that I worked with. And her the very thing she thought she was best with, best about, which was uh, connecting with other people, her boss had said, you know, you do great work, but you're not not connected enough. And she felt absolutely terrible about it. Um, you know, thought for a while, maybe I don't belong in this company. Maybe I should transfer to vision. He just can't appreciate what I'm best at until she realized that that he actually had no way of knowing he didn't sit in her office. He didn't see who came in. He didn't monitor her email. So she began sending him a, an email once a week, just, you know, this week I connected with X, Y, Z, and A, B, and D. Uh, you know, just names, nothing about it. And she said she felt like a fool doing that. She felt like, oh, he's going to think I'm wasting my time. Why is she doing this? And he came up to her and he said, you know, that's information I need to know. That's information that helps me understand who our unit, our division is connecting with. So I think that neutral idea of treating what you're doing, what you're accomplishing when you're working with somebody or for somebody or in an organization is very important. But then the other part of it is what we talked about earlier, having a kind of vision statement ready so that when anybody asks you, you know, what what do you do? What's, you know, what are you good at? What's your expertise? Mm -hmm. You can qualify that. Thank you for that advice. You know, I, I love that because as you know, you and I both know Marshall pretty well. And one of the things he said very early on in my career, which I never forgot, have your three second elevator speech. So when somebody says to you, just like you're saying, what do you do? You come out with something that is absolutely clear, crisp, unambiguous. And boy, it was hard. You know, it sounds simple, but it wasn't easy to do because we've got all the stuff we want to tell people. Right, exactly. So it's it's being really concise. Now, yeah. speaking of concise, that's another one of the behaviors yes. um, in the book is, is you know, uh, on communication, uh, two habits that are that will often get in women's way, especially as they seek to go higher, are number one, either kind of minimizing, always saying, well, I only have one thing to say, or can I just make one observation, or this will only take a second. Um, right. Apologizing is also a form of minimizing. But the right. other is, is, is offering too much, too much information, too many words, too many thoughts, too much background is very common. You know, let me tell you how I came up with this idea. Now, Probably better just to get to the idea. So um, those are those are also uh, so with a vision statement. It, it's really important to think about being concise. And I learned a lot about it by giving workshops for women. One of the things we do is we start off by uh, working for them to get a really authentic. A vision statement. And it takes some time. You have to dig down. But once you have it, and once you can rattle it off, once you can, like Marshall, Marshall yeah. does. I mean, I learned so much, Linda. I agree working with him. Uh, he's great at this stuff. So then you, you can feel comfortable going into most situations and, and being very clear and representing yourself well. 
So what I'm hearing is the vision statement, communicate it concisely, but get rid of those filler words, the likes, the so's, the just, oh, yeah. the unstories. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Sally, so in the book, you go into how organizations make it hard to change behavior. And, yeah. you know, really it is behavior at the end of the day, in my view and in my experience, and I think obviously in yours, that will ultimately change the culture the values and the processes. So how do organizations make it hard to change behavior? I love that caption. Yeah, one of the primary ways is people get pegged as she's good at this, she's good at that, she's not very good at this. Don't put her in that position because, you know, she... Uh, you know, has demonstrated that she doesn't think fast, think fast on her feet. So that's fine. You know, we all want to engage our strengths. But one of the problems is that once those stereotypes or once those perceptions, I think is a better word in that case, get entrenched, it's very difficult to change them. So you may have worked very hard on becoming you know, more concise, more proactive, a much more competent speaker, thinking quickly on your feet, adding, you know, enough value or not adding too much value, whatever it is. Uh, You may have worked on that and the people immediately around you may know that, but then, uh, you know, it may not get noticed and you may be tagged. So, so part of what we talk about in the book is the importance of advertising that you're trying to change behaviors as a way of not just changing behaviors, but also changing perceptions. It's yes. really important. That, you know, we are at a break, but this is such an important point because this is what changes people's minds is when they change their perception of you. And that goes back to the other point that you made. And, you know, you also talk about uh, ability to enlist allies. And, and I think that's really important. And Morag, that's right up your alley. So when we come back, we're going to talk about perception the other 12 habits, and in particular, delve into allies from day one, creating allies. Sounds good. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. This is Morag, and our guest this week is Sally Helgerson, who's been noted by Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. And Linda and I are talking with Sally about her new book, How Women Rise. And before we went to break, we started the question around allies, which is close to my heart. I talk about the concept of allies and professional relationships in my book, Cultivate the Power of Winning Relationships. And for me, these are people who have your back no matter what. But I'm curious, Sally, what does being an ally or having an ally mean when we talk about how women rise? One of the things that I've observed over my decades working with women is that that a, a very common thing that happens is a woman will come into a new job and she'll say, 
I'm going to spend the first three months or the first six months keeping my head down and mm-hmm. I'm going to really learn this job. And then I'm going to look up and I'm going to you know, start building my network. So it's kind of separating those two things. And I think there's a bit of fear, a bit of insecurity sometimes in that idea that I don't really want to start bringing people in until I have this job to some degree mastered and until, until, you know, I, I, I know what I'm doing, a fear perhaps of being criticized because maybe you have been criticized in the past. But when contrast that with what I see as the most successful behavior, which is often exhibited by men who are successful, where they come into a job and the first thing they say is, who do I need to know around here to make sure this is successful? Mm-hmm. And the result of that approach is more support, more visibility, and guess what? A lot less work. Uh, and and I think that that idea of becoming an expert and then starting to build allies can be problematic, often for women, and uh, and is is a behavior that I've watched get in the way of of women. You have to do those two things at once. You have to build allies. You have to build connections. You have to build your uh, ex, uh, your your network as you build your expertise. They have to be aligned. It's interesting because I hear the and because if I go back to the first habit that you shared, the expecting others to notice your talents. If you have that, then that drives their head down. I'm just going to work hard and prove you hired the right person. But what you're yes. saying is, don't just do them in isolation. Do them in parallel. Do them in parallel because you will have more support and it's more likely that you'll become successful. And guess what? When you're first new in a job, you're not going to be an expert. You are mm-hmm. going to need help. Uh, so it's a it's a really important uh, concept. And I, I'm, I'm always surprised by how rarely women are really encouraged to do that. And that we tend to, you know, we have these mental models. And one thing we often may think is, you know, well, you know, I have to prove myself harder, than, you know, more than a, a guy in the same position might have to. Uh, and it is, um, you know, it, it's, it's problematic. You can't, even if that is true, even if that's true, you have to build those allies and make those efforts before you have the expertise. Okay, so how do I know if somebody is my ally? Well, I think that one of the things in the book, Morag, I'm defining allies probably more broadly than you articulated Mm -hmm. earlier when you said an ally is someone who always has your back. And uh, that's certainly true. But an ally can also be sort of more transactional and somebody Mm -hmm. whose interests are allied with yours uh, at a given time. So uh, that's, you know, that's, uh, I think, important to remember. It doesn't have to be somebody who's always got your back and who's always there for you. Uh, Those relationships are extremely valuable, but they're not, you know, you don't get them coming and going. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's one of the really important lessons we have in the book is, you know, you don't need to be great friends with everybody or trust somebody even on, on everything in order to enlist them as an ally, someone, you know, can you help me on this? I can help you on that. So it's it's kind of building that network that has some transactional aspect. Um, so, that's important. 
So I love it because when I was reading the book, the, the chapters around relationships particularly caught my eye. And so once I obviously enlist my allies, you had a chapter then on leveraging relationships. Yeah. So how do I leverage relationships without it feeling Machiavellian or whatever? <laughs> Yes, um, that's that's so interesting. I haven't heard anybody describe it as Machiavellian, but I do I do understand that. The idea often as women we think you know we have to have relationships, we have to be friends, they have to be kind of the same thing. And so what I what you find often is women will have very they'll build over time these broad deep networks that they have because they're very good at building relationships and very invested in it but they'll be reluctant to leverage those use those relationships to say listen i'm i'm wondering if you could introduce me to this person or i'm wondering if you could help me um, you know find some information about this project or you know identifying people who can help you in a certain way and then you know asking them to to be involved with you and then offering offering something for them as well okay so give and take don't always give don't always take right the appropriate balance right and recognize something i think you know if you see yourself as a potential player as somebody who potentially has influence and power and power is really just a manifestation of influence um then in the in, when you ask people to to help you you can think of those people are lucky because now they have you in your corner. Now they have a kind of chit in with you. So it's a it's a way of thinking about yourself as someone who can you know really be valuable and helpful to know for other people. Then it makes you less shy about enlisting them because you know that you'll be able to provide them with real help in the future. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I I'm real. I really love that. And as as I'm going through the book, you have well, you, you know, the twelve are fabulous, and every woman should read the twelve and go through your exercises at the end. But I love the seven and eight, which is the perfection trap and the disease to please. Yes, this seems to me to be something that women inherently do so tell me about those tell us tell tell us about those I mean, the, the perfection trap is is really just that feeling that either you are you do everything perfectly in your job in your relationships in how you answer your email you're you're you do things perfectly or if you don't it, it's just a mess. You've made a terrible mess of it. And the, this can lead you. And it's, we understand why this happens. Girls are often encouraged to be perfect in their schoolwork. Girls aren't encouraged to be, you know, boys get, are given some latitude to be sort of naughty little boys. There's a, a affection for them. The, the, the bad girl rarely, rarely gets a break. Um, so there's, there's a reason that women tend to equate being perfect with getting credit. And in fact, uh, it's very interesting that organizations tend to reward precision and correctness in women in organizations, but reward boldness and risk-taking more for men. So women get the message. It's reinforced. It's not just from childhood. Oh, being precise, correct, perfect in what I do is going to get me a reward. But at very senior levels, it really gets in your way. Um, you create stress for yourself, of course, but you create stress for people around you. I've never met anyone 
in 30 years of doing what I do, who has said to me, you know, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. No one likes working for a perfectionist. (laughs) That's that's exactly right. So how does somebody, because I do think you're right, Sally. I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of research done around perfectionism, but and, and I'm not familiar with any hard research around male-female in relationship to that. So I think this is very interesting. But how does a woman get around that perfectionist trap, you know, since it has been ingrained? Yeah, it has definitely been ingrained and, and also often reinforced in the workplace. And I think, you know, one of the strengths of How Women Rise and uh, is that we don't just provide a diagnostic of these 12 behaviors and description and stories that are real life stories about women who have struggled with these behaviors. But we also have a template at the end of the book for addressing these behaviors. And if you identify as a perfectionist, this is really where this te- one of the places this template can be very useful because what we ask you to do is engage other people in your efforts to change. And that is extraordinarily effective for a perfectionist because perfectionists are afraid of other people seeing them mess up. So if you can say, um, you know, I'm I've gotten some feedback that I'm a bit of a perfectionist and it may be causing some stress. Certainly it's causing stress to me. I'm going, you know, I'm going to ask you, um, would you, you know, let me know if you've seen, if you see going forward moments when I seem to be perfectionistic, when I seem to be exhibiting that, when I seem to be demanding that people provide perfect work, uh, when I seem to be putting too much stress on other people. Uh, Or you could ask somebody, you know, who you notice is a is a very, very strong leader, uh, you know, who does who, who, who does get exceptional performance from people, but has some tolerance for mistakes. You can ask that person, you know, I I really admire how you do that. Can you give me any thoughts about how I might get better at that? Um, So we have a whole template about doing that. And I think that one of the places it's most effective using that template is perfectionism because it strikes at the at the root of what of what binds you. Yeah, interesting. And I have a question. A question has come into us from uh, a listener and says, you know, we talked about the disease to please. Yes. Uh, so what is that? And, and, and this listener says, I think I have that. Disease. <laughs> so what can I do about it? Yeah, the disease to please is really feeling that everybody needs to think you're wonderful. People need to feel as if, you know, you want everybody to like you, to feel that you came through for them and that you are a wonderful person. And guess what? That's very helpful early in your career um, because, you know, people who are perceived of as being wonderful, people want to have them around. They tend to, you know, become more successful. But when you are at a real leadership level and part of what you need to do is hold other people to account, the disease to please makes it very difficult to hold other people to account. It also makes it difficult to reinforce some of the boundaries that that 
help position you as a leader and that every leader must have. So it can really get in your way. One of the things that I've noticed is that women who exhibit this disease to please at work, where they're trying to be all things to everybody, often carry that at home as well. So they really put a heavy burden on themselves in terms of pleasing other people. But again, I think, you know, first of all, becoming aware of that. I think that the disease to please is one of the things that you can really benefit from coaching. And if you don't have a budget for a coach, use a peer coach. Uh, we've got some techniques in the book for engaging a peer coach to help you address uh, address this because the disease to please will it will really keep you stuck at higher levels because uh, you, you you just you too much of your job is going to be holding other people to account and you don't have a you don't have a clue about how to do that if you're that involved in pleasing. Yeah, point. So this is such a great conversation. I wish you could see the social media the buzz that it's causing here. Right. And one of the questions that have just popped up in my feed is, that to what extent do you notice generational or cultural differences in these habits? I mean, I shared my British overlay on the tooting of my own horn, but I'm curious whether that's just me imagining it or are you seeing generational and cultural differences? I definitely see cultural differences in terms of it's, it's harder in my experience uh, for women who come out of some more traditional cultures um, where there are a lot of expectations on women, uh, you know, countries like uh, like India, certainly the Middle East, et cetera, Japan. Um, it's it's the, the first two behaviors, particularly uh, claiming your achievements and not expecting people to, you know, uh, spontaneously notice uh, and reward what you do. Those are very difficult for women in those cultures, and there are some prohibitions around it. Generationally, what I find is is those two habits, those first two habits about achievements and and you know bringing notice to what you do. I think that a younger generation is is a little more savvy starting out that that's not a helpful behavior. But I do find that minimizing. And a lack of, of conciseness, some of the communication things are can be highly problematic with the, with the generation emerging now. Thanks, Sally. Well, you're listening to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show with Dr. Linda Sharkey and myself, Morag Barrett. And our guest this week is Sally Helgerson, a world expert on women's leadership. And we're discussing her book, How Women Rise. So stay with us. There'll be more compelling conversation and insights when we get back. We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. 
I'm Linda Sharkey and with my co-host Morag Barrett and we're talking to Sally Helgeson who really is regarded as the gold standard when it comes to women in leadership and and you were saying Sally you know you thought it was really uh, more difficult in certain cultures yes um, I, I find that sort of fascinating because I'm wondering um, in specific, what do you think is causing the shift in the Middle East? Because clearly there is a shift going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there definitely is. And I, you know, I think it's, you know, as so often and, and you know, the, the changes in the economy, technology and demography are always inter- intertwined. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that has, has been a, a big factor in the emergence of women over the last 30 years. And now the, the global nature of competition drives an emphasis on talent. More and more organizations recognize that uh, the organization with the best talent and the most innovation is going to be the one that is most future-proof. Um, and and that has, has coincided with a, a growing recognition that a lot of the leadership strengths that women bring to organizations are really suited given the nature of the technology and given the you know web-like shape of organizations and functioning today so i think that you know that has that's a global trend so when you look at changes particularly that have happened in uh in the working environment or, you know, in, in energy companies even, but certainly in the medical field and hospitals in the Middle East, uh, and you see more women in positions of authority, uh, I think that what you're seeing is the, the, the patterns of the global and demands of the global economy are to yeah. some extent overwhelming some of the, the, the regional conservatism that has kept women in their place. And it's one of the reasons there's volatility, but there's also one of the reasons, it's also one of the reasons why there's so much movement and ferment in terms of women. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really true. I, I, I'm actually gonna switch gears a little bit here because I, I wanna, you have an interesting, well, they're all interesting, but this letting your radar distract you. Yeah. <laughs> and that is just such an interesting phrase. Tell, tell us about that. Well, you know, when I was working on my last book, The Female Vision, Women's Real Power Work, which is published in 2010, uh, we were trying to look at um, why uh, research showed that although many of the talents women are so good at in the workplace um, are valued and recognized by senior leaders, there there seems to be a perception, uh, and this has been written about a number of places, that among senior leaders that women are somehow, quote unquote, lacking in vision. So mm. as we were you know, looking at that, trying to figure out what was involved, one of the things we learned was that, you know, the building block of your vision is what you notice. And women tend to have a a capacity for sort of broad scale noticing. That is noticing a lot of what's going on at the same time, rather than noticing and, you know, so with their radar, with their notice operating kind of like radar scanning the room, as opposed to a more laser-like 
uh, notice, which is typical of men. And this is verified in, in neuroscience. I mean, they can look at, you know, patterns of male and female brains in operation and observe this. So this is a great strength for women is this broad spectrum notice and being able to sort of see around the corners, as Jeff yeah. Immelt famously said, yeah. uh, capability that was would be needed at, at uh at GE in the future, uh, you know, and noticing a lot, noticing uh, relationships, uh, that's a great skill. But there can be a shadow side or a dark side uh, to radar, which is that you're you're noticing too much. You're, not, you're reading too much maybe into relationships. And I think it's one of the uh, primary reasons that women often run into run into problems with another behavior in there, which is rumination, which again is documented, that is, is you know, going over and over, why did I say that? Why did that happen? What does that mean? Doesn't that person like me? Oh, they'll never like me again. You know, those kinds of rabbit holes that you can get pulled down. Uh, and that's it's highly my, problematic. I, I see myself doing that. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it is a derailer for sure. Mm-hmm. It so can be a derailer and it can make you also feel isolated and alone. Yeah. And, and it, you know, there, there are lots of issues with it. But I believe that 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 rumination and I, you know, this is my own intuition just from having researched and, you know, brought forth this idea of radar and broad spectrum notice. I believe that um, that the that broad spectrum notice is one of the factors that's responsible for that rumination when when it's when it's not functioning optimally. <laughs> I've been listening to the conversation, Linda. I wonder if we compared notes, would we get the full set of all twelve habits between <laughs> us? You know, but Laura, we got to do the survey. Let's oh, do it. Okay, let's do the survey. So, so Sally, there's a survey. So tell us as we're coming in the last ten minutes or so of our conversation. Yeah. Okay, we've explored some of the habits, not all twelve, but a lot of them. What, what on earth do we do now? How do we change? And what do we need to keep in mind as we're preparing to change? Well, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind, um, and this goes to the original model of Marshall, is we need to recognize that the behaviors that may get in our way are also strengths. And they have probably brought us to where we are. So we need to not beat ourselves up when we begin to recognize you know, certain, certain habits and behaviors. Behaviors okay. that are causing problems mm -hmm. for us. So that's important. The other thing is, you know, you really want to come up with a plan once you've identified a couple behaviors. And I have to say, you know, of these 12 behaviors, I would say that I, you know, have been bedeviled at various times by probably mm -hmm. nine of them. So, <laughs> um, and I've worked with a lot of women in coaching situations, et cetera, particularly in, in workshops. And, and the most important thing is, once you go through, you read, you think, oh, my Lord, I've got, you know, eight, uh, there's, you know, 10 of these describe me, all 12 do. I've had people say that to me. Um, you just, when you start to work on it, just work on one thing or work just on one. one part of a behavior, even uh -huh. one part. You know, you notice you share too much. You've had feedback. You know, you need to be mm -hmm. more concise. Don't, you know, don't say, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm going to become more concise. I mean, anybody who's tried to, you know, be a brand new me on a diet knows that doesn't work. What works is, you know, cutting out that one cookie. Right. So, um, you know, over and over again. So, you know, start with one thing. I'm going to be 
I'm going to try to be more precise, more prepared in this meeting that I do every week where, you know, I often feel as if I'm a little bit all over the place. Mm -hmm. I've had feedback on that. So start with one thing. Enlist allies. Can't say it enough. You know, get other get, you know, learn from other people. You know, do you think I'm getting better at this? What would you do? You're very concise. You know, is are there tips I can learn from you? So that phase of enlisting allies. And one of the things Marshall's really clear on, Linda, may, you may be familiar with this as well, is he said, you know, when you ask for advice, when you ask for help, when you ask someone to observe you, when you ask someone for tips going forward, don't comment on what they say. Just say thank you. Don't mm, say, well, I'd like nice. to try that, but, or, you know, the problem with that is, or I've tried, you know, just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Doesn't mean you have to do it, but it's part of engaging people as allies. So so I think that's that's a you know really, really important aspect. Um, and then and then you're going to have to do something to help yourself let go. Um, you know, there's so much now with mindfulness and meditation and, you know, Marshall's a Buddhist, so he's got all these practices. But it's really important to be able to forgive yourself for not being a perfect person. And that you're going to have to have some practice around that because as your awareness gets raised about how you may be getting in your own way, you have to resist the temptation to feel like, oh, I'm hopeless or, you know, I've always been doing this or or to, to become negative and think, well, I can't change at this point. You know, I'm 55 years old. If I've been doing this all these years, I'm not saying I'm 55, I'm older than that. But, um, you know, I've been doing it all these years. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, one of the things that we know, one of the great gifts of neuroscience is that it sh- it's taught us, you know, the adult brain is plastic and yes. we can change our behaviors by practicing new behaviors. One thing at a time, in baby steps, but we can practice new behaviors mm-hmm. and make them real. Yeah, hard to do. It's easier said than done, actually. Oh Lord, yes, yeah. it is very hard to do. It's hard to do, but but you know these are they're almost tweaks that we're recommending here. Yeah, uh, yeah, because they're. You know, there are positive things in these behaviors, but it, it, it's difficult to uh, to radically change. But tweaking is is possible. Yeah. You know, Sally, um, what, we're coming to the end of the show. We have three minutes left and it's been a fascinating conversation. What if, if you had three pieces of advice for women, um, what would that be? The first piece of advice is the one I've given, I think now for 28 years, is it is important for every woman to recognize, articulate, and act on her greatest strengths. So identify what those strengths are, be clear about them, speak about them, and then act on them. so that's that's really important. Allied with that is what we started talking about at the beginning, is have a vision statement, have a way of expressing what you're trying to achieve in your life, in your job, in your career, 
in you know in in the position you're in right now it can be so but just develop that so that you can articulate it really clearly and number three is don't be too hard on yourself marshall told me he has never worked with a woman ever congressional medal of honor winner you know ceo he always has to at some point say don't be so hard on yourself um and that's you know that's a key piece of advice yeah that's really true sally uh, how do people get a hold of you well, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Um, my website is sallyhelgeson.com and I have a contact button there and I always respond when people reach out to me that way. I'm also quite active on LinkedIn. Uh, the other platforms, I, I do have a present, but I'm not not that active. I should be more, I know. But uh, but I, I, I do, uh, I, I love LinkedIn. I love being in touch with people through that. Uh, and then my email is sally at sallyhelgeson.com. So you can just send me an email as well. Well, that's terrific, Sally. Thank you so much for an enlightened discussion. And uh, Morag, last word? Just thank you for the insights. And uh, I'm going to go and write that vision statement and start tooting my horn. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Great advice. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Future Proof Workplace, and we hope to talk to you next week. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.